Good morning to you all. It's a pleasure to be with you again this morning and have an opportunity to share once again and continue our study in Luke chapter 24. So if you want to turn there to Luke chapter 24, we'll get started. Joyce and I will be leaving on Wednesday early morning and be heading down to Florida. We have a stop in Marietta, Georgia to speak next Sunday at the assembly there. And then we'll be speaking at Hiawasa Bible Chapel in Orlando, Florida on the following Sunday. Then two Sundays at Claremont Bible Chapel, or Claremont Bible Fellowship in uh, Claremont, Florida. And then we'll be heading back up and stopping in South Carolina to visit with Alan Parks for a little while. And then we'll be heading up to the Elliots and speaking at the assembly there, arriving back here mid-December. So we certainly would be appreciating your prayer as we uh, your prayers as we travel about Luke 24 and let's read the account the same account that we read last week and we'll begin at verse 13 very familiar story to most of us here this morning now behold two of them and this was two of the uh, multitude of disciples Two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleophas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at table with them, that he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and he knew, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And while he opened the Scripture to us, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told them about the things that had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. And now when he said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are thankful. We are thankful that our Savior lives. We are thankful, Lord, that he walks with us and talks with us. And we have communion with our risen Lord. We're thankful, Father, for the cross. We're thankful for the things that occurred there and how our sin was laid upon Him. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful that You bore our sins in Your own body on the tree. 
And we're thankful for this morning and for this story. And we pray that You would bless and encourage and strengthen us by Thy Spirit as we seek to unpack it. And may it be for Thy glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began, and we're going to reiterate that again this morning, we began by looking at and thinking about the extraordinary or extraordinary Scripture that we lay, that lays in our hands. How extraordinary is the Word of God that we hold. And how valuable it is to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. How important the Word of God is. And when the Spirit takes His Word and applies it to human hearts and minds, the effects of that Word are remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. The things that God has done through His Word. Now, it was interesting this week as I was studying and going through, I noticed a, a post that was made on Facebook. Not that I was using Facebook to study, mind you, but as I took a little break and went to Facebook and checked, there was a little video on there by Ray Comfort. How many of you saw that video about the atheist and how he was talking with atheists? And the question that he brought up, first he asked if they were atheists, and they said, yes, they're atheists, and why are you atheists? Because there's not enough evidence to, to prove otherwise. And then he very carefully began to open up to them the idea of special revelation. Now, how did he do that? We, we are, our natural revelation, I should say. Natural revelation. And how did he do that? We understand what natural revelation is, right? The Lord has revealed Himself to us through natural revelation and supernatural revelation. Through general revelation and through specific revelation. He has revealed Himself to us. And we recognize that in natural revelation, we recognize that all the things that God has made bear witness to the reality of God Himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard, their line is gone through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set, a, set as a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. And rejoices like a strong one to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, God has given evidence of His reality. God has given evidence. And day after day after day after day, it speaks. Day after day, we can see in the creation of God. His glory and His majesty. The idea of the special design. That there is a designer of all of this. And what Ray Comfort did was he looked at the unseen world. Yet that unseen world is also of the Creator, is it not? And he looked at the DNA that is in every single living thing and how that DNA that is in every single living thing is like books of knowledge that the cells in the body go to in order to draw. If they want to make an eye, they go to it and they draw all the information and they can form an eye out of the genes that are within the DNA. Watch that video. It's very good. And as he's going through this and explaining it to them and going through this idea of DNA, which they understand from science, which they understand from their own studies. These were well-educated kids that he was talking to. And he'd get to the end and he'd say, he'd say something about, is there evidence of a designer? Is there an evidence of intelligent design? How can you look at the evidence and yet still say this all came from nothing? How can you look at it and say it all came from nothing? And then he had a little portion in there. I don't want to go on with this, but he had a little portion in there from Dawkins, you know, the professor who, who is very well uh, understood and taught within the school systems and how he was talking about, yes, everything came from nothing. 
And they were asking about that. And he's trying to explain what he means by nothing. And the audience began to chuckle. And they, he said, what are you laughing at? And one of them said, it's just so very interesting to hear you explain what nothing is. It does not come from nothing. There is a natural revelation. And God has revealed Himself. And then there is a specific revelation. Or there is a supernatural revelation that God has given to us in His Word. Certainly that is one part of that supernatural revelation that He has given to us. He has also given us the revelation of His own Son, And God became incarnate and entered into this world. But there's the the supernatural revelation of His Word as God breathed out His Word. And men have it in their hands, translated into our own languages. But you'll notice something that natural revelation does not do. Natural revelation does not tell you that you are one who is lost in their sin and in need of a Redeemer. Nowhere does natural revelation tell you that. But the super revelation, the supernatural revelation of God through His Word teaches us that we are sinners, that we are lost, that we are part of a fallen race of man. And that God came into the world to save sinners. And even with all the evidence before them, those individuals would still say, I still do not believe. I still do not believe. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe with the evidence. Some still reject God, although they had no answers. And it became clear to me That a relationship with the living God is absolutely essential for the mind to be able to understand with clarity the Word of God. And to see in the revelation of nature the things of God. Without the Spirit of God, which you have been studying and looking at, without the Spirit of God, it is just words on a page. But the Spirit of God takes those words and as we looked last week, can now reach into the life and change one who is listening and yielded to the Spirit of God. Romans attests to that fact when it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness in men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then we see that downward step in progression Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. No excuse. If God has revealed to us not only through the natural revelation, but through the supernatural revelation of His Word, the truth concerning Himself. And it's not relative truth. It is true truth. You know, that's one of those funny statements that you keep hearing, especially in the news. This is, this is true truth. If it's true, it's true. There's no such thing as false truth. Either it's true or it's not true. God, in this special revelation that He has given to us, He has communicated with man. And He is the God who is there and He is not silent. Not only in His natural revelation, but in His supernatural relation. He is the God who has talked, as we said last week. He's the God who has spoken. He is the God who has spoken. And I've said this on on a number of occasions, and I'll repeat it again. He is the transcendent God. Correct? But He is also a personal God. 
And there you have compatibilism. The transcendent God has talked and has spoken and has come down to where you and I are and communicates with us through His Word. Is that good? Is that exciting? Yeah, we've heard it for so long, we forget just how marvelous that fact is. The transcendent God is personal. And He speaks directly to man. He has spoken through the theophanies. He has spoken through visions. He's spoken through dreams. He's spoken through direct communication from God's mouth to men's ears. And it has been written down for us so that we can see it. And God has spoken to us. In this account that we're studying, and you may be curious, and I'm sure you've figured it out by now, being good students of the Word of God, why I emphasized in both messages the value of the Word of God and the changing effect that the Word of God can have in the life of an individual when the Spirit of God takes it and applies it to the heart. You have come and you've looked at this story and you understand by the story, that this is going to be exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does on the road to Emmaus, isn't it? It's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ will do on the road to Emmaus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Cleophas says, and we looked last week, and we ended at verse 20 last week, so we're going to jump right in at verse 21. And you know the context, so it's not difficult to do so. He says, but we were hoping... We were hoping that He was going to be the one that was going to bring redemption for Israel. We were hoping that He was going to redeem Israel. And that's where these two weary travelers are in their thinking and in their sadness and in their grief as they are walking back to Jerusalem and the Lord, I mean, walking back to Emmaus, back to home with the Lord Jesus Christ joining along with them and asking them what was causing them to be so sad. The foundation of their sadness was we were hoping that He was going to be the one that was to redeem Israel. We were hoping They'd been hoping that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They were hoping that He was the Messiah. So many had come. So many had claimed to be. This one was unlike any of them. He spoke with power. He spoke with authority like they never knew. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He did. He multiplied bread and fed thousands. He was like no other. And we thought for sure this was the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. But their hopes had been dashed when the Jewish religious leaders suddenly succeeded in crucifying Jesus. They crucified Him. They nailed Him to a cross. And they're going home now dejected Disappointed. They were still, I would say, in shock. Still in shock at what had happened. They didn't understand why God had let them down. Why did God let me down? Why did God let us down? We thought for sure, and we've been waiting so long, and we thought for sure this was the one. He let us down. My brothers and sisters, What were your expectations of Jesus when you came to Him? What were your expectations of the Lord Jesus when you received Him as your Savior and your Lord? What were your expectations of Him? What are our expectations even now of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you disappointed? Are you saddened? Have we understood in our hearts the core of our being? 
all that the prophets have spoken concerning Him? Have we understood in the core of our being, in our very souls, all that the prophets have spoken concerning Him? If your expectations are wrong, if your expectations are misplaced, you can even be disappointed with God. You can even be disappointed. Not that God has failed in any way. Not that God has somehow been lacking. He is far more glorious, far more perfect than we ever could conceive. But often because of our limited perspective, we feel perhaps that He's let us down. He's let us down. We thought He would do something, and He didn't do it. We thought that we were trusting in the promises of His Word, but they didn't come true. We thought that we were praying in line with His will, but He didn't answer. He didn't come through as we had hoped He would. Have we been disappointed with God ever? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Notice Cleophas' words. He says, besides this, this is the third day since these things happened. This, this is the third day since these things happened. You see, they had, the disciples had some concept, some understanding that something special was supposed to happen on that third day. If you go back, and let's do that. Let's go back to chapter 9. And you know, when a, when a preacher goes back, there's always a danger. But let's go back to chapter 9. And let's look at verse 22. And it says, verse 21, And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. That's very vague, isn't it? That's not vague at all. That's very clear. Look at chapter 13 and verse 32. He says, and he said to them, go tell that fox, see this, uh, behold, I, t- I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be perfected. On the third day I shall be perfected. Chapter 18. Go to chapter 18 and verse 33. Chapter 18 of Luke, in verse 33, where he begins, And they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. These times the Lord Jesus Christ clearly said to them, I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer many things from the high priests and from the rulers. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the Scripture tells us they did not comprehend what He had said. They didn't get it. The Spirit of God did not allow them to comprehend with all clarity what that meant. But now Cleophas says with some kind, some sort of understanding, doesn't he? And, and this is the third day since these things happened. This is the third day since these things happened. The women, they went down to the tomb at early in the morning and they came home and they astonished us. They said they had seen a vision of angels. But the guys went down, they didn't see any angels. There was nothing down there. The body was gone, but he wasn't down there. We don't know what to expect. But this is the third day. What were they expecting, do you suppose? It's speculation. But they knew the the law, didn't they? They knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah because they were hoping that He would be the Messiah that would come. Were they expecting that on this third day He was going to come in glory and defeat the enemies? Was He going to now appear again and bring about all those promises of deliverance to the nation? And they were waiting for Him to come. They were waiting on this third day. Surely He's going to do something spectacular now. Just wait. And the day ends, comes to a close, and nothing has happened. 
And again, their hopes are dashed. And again, their hopes are gone. Are we, you and I, are we a bit Thomas-like sometimes in our understanding? Are we a bit Thomas-like in our belief? Unless I see the prince in his, in his hands or thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, no one in this room would say that we're like that because we have faith and we believe. Having not seen, we have believed. But sometimes we do it in other ways. We pray for certain concrete evidences of the Lord's reality, and we pray that the Lord would do certain things or do act in certain ways, and when He doesn't act in those ways, we become disappointed. Don't we? I mean, I think we do. We're looking always at tangible things. We want to see tangible evidence that the Lord loves me. I want to see tangible evidence that the Lord is who He says He is. I want to see tangible evidence. I believe that He can do these things. I believe that He can do it. But He didn't do it for me. And we become discouraged. We become discouraged. We expect God to act in certain ways. We expect God to act in ways that are tangible. Healing this or that sickness. Providing for this or that need. And when He is doing things in ways that we believe He should do, then we are encouraged. When you see nothing happen, we are discouraged. And in those times, often it's when He is shaping us into the image of His Son. Through the unseen things. The unanswered prayer. The pain and suffering that you continue to go through that He has not delivered you from. And He is working to bring about His purposes. Shaping us into the image of His Son and looking toward the culmination and the finishing of this age. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. He lives. He lives. He's coming again. Do you believe all that the prophets have spoken concerning Him? He's coming again. Do we live our lives in tangible ways that reflect that we believe all that the prophets have spoken concerning Him? He is coming again. Don't you love the tenderness of our Lord? And I'm watching the clock because I'm already knowing I'm not going to get through this if I don't hurry along. Then the Lord responds to them. He responds to Cleophas and to his companion. And he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow at heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. In essence, what he is saying to them is this. Oh, you have lost your power of reasoning. You have lost your ability to reason. For that's what the foolish has, the power to reason. You, you don't have reasoning power right now. You have lost the ability to perceive with your mind. You have become slow to apprehend and to be persuaded by all that the prophets have spoken. Are we? Are we slow? I am. Slow to comprehend. And I was talking with Richie about this earlier. It is amazing to me as as I get older, and many of you would agree with this statement, I'm sure, that as I get older, when I was young, I had all the answers. And now that I'm old, I have few. I have few. But this I know. This I know. 
that my Redeemer lives and on the earth again will stand. This I know, that I am a child of the living God. This I know, that I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And there are certain foundational bedrock things that I know with absolute certainty. And then there are many other things that I wish I knew. And there will be some who would agree and say that, oh, I know these things in absolute certainty. Give yourself a few years. Are we slow to comprehend? Ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? The prophets spoke of it, and the chief priests and elders delivered Him to be condemned to death and crucified Him. It was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. And now we, we look back on the pages of Scripture, and from hindsight, we have 20-20 vision. We can look back at the Old Testament Scripture. We can see clearly the evidence that is there because the Spirit of God now dwells within us and He illuminates the Word of God to us so that we can see things that perhaps they could not clearly see. The illuminating work of the Spirit of God. Taking the Word of God and making it clear in the minds of those who read and who study. It was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. It was the plan and purpose of God by which redemption would come. This they did not completely comprehend at this moment on the Emmaus Road. They did not comprehend that. They had not been enabled to see the future. The prophecies that were yet to be fulfilled in Christ. Interesting, to say the least, mysterious, certainly, are the ways of God sometimes. Are they not? Are they not? Let me give you an example, and you'll see where I'm going with this. Let me give you an example. Joseph is taken by wicked hands of his brethren, sold into Egypt, suffers greatly, is imprisoned, goes through some very, very hard, hard years, and yet the Lord exalts him to the position of power in Egypt. And you remember the end of the story when the brethren, his brothers, scared for their lives, come and plead with him to forgive him. And he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that somehow God had a plan to bring Joseph down to Egypt? He was going to bring him down in a chariot. He was going to bring him down in glory and splendor. He was going to bring him down and immediately put him in in power in Pharaoh's court. He was immediately going to set him up on the throne. And the brothers mucked it up for him. Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. The sovereign God, the almighty sovereign God, allowed things to transpire to bring about His ultimate purpose in the end. Now, that's compatibilism. Is that hard to understand? Is that hard to grasp? Well, look at this one. You remember if we, if we were to go and, and let's, let's do that. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. And to this preaching of Peter. And we're going to skip down to verse 14. Now he's speaking to the leaders and he's speaking to those men of Israel who are listening to him. And he says, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of whom we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man whole. Chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. Verse 7. 
And when they set him in the midst, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Spirit, said, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we are judged for the good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, this man stands before you whole. The stone which the builder has rejected has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other in any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 27, And truly your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand, your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with boldness they may speak your word. Who crucified the Lord Jesus? Who put Him on the cross? And we see the wicked hands of man taking the Lord Jesus and crucifying Him. We see the wicked thoughts of men's hearts taking the Redeemer, taking the Messiah of Israel and laying Him on a cross and nailing Him to that cross. And they hold a responsibility for doing so. Yet it was the determined purpose and knowledge of God. It was His design by which they did it. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that we have a hard time grasping and understanding. Let me ask this question. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe that God is absolute sovereign in all that He does and all that He says? We, most of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are not fatalists in the, in the final analysis, are we? Fatalist would be one who says uh, everything is determined. Every, every single step, every single motion, every single thought, every single word, everything that happens in my life has been predetermined and will happen regardless of anything I do. And that's fatalism. That's fatalism. Yet at the same time, we would say with absolute certainty in our hearts, God is a sovereign God and does whatever He chooses to do in the kingdoms of man. We are not simply pawns on a great celestial chessboard and we have no say in anything that happens in your life, in my life, do we? Are we? But let's look at the other side. God is absolutely sovereign, and yet there appears in the same Scripture that man has responsibility. Even in the portions that deal with His sovereignty, the next chapter will talk about the responsibility. And we have compatibilism. We have the compatibilism doesn't seek to try and prove one side or the other. It simply says they both exist. They're both there. Do you see them both, my brothers and sisters? Do you see them both? Explain them to me. Explain them to me. I thought one time I had all the answers, and now I go back and say the secret things belong to the Lord. And there are certain things within the wisdom and foreknowledge and understanding of God that I cannot possibly grasp in my limited ability, in my limited comprehension. And I think you would agree, regardless of which side you take on the, on the issue, you would agree. Some would say, oh, God is not absolutely sovereign because man has responsibility. If you take the sovereignty away from God, you take away His personhood. You take away who He is. He is absolutely sovereign. Well, the man can't have a responsibility, but the Scriptures clearly point out that He does. He does. And whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe that? Well, they couldn't call. Well, we won't go any further. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, He says to them, You've not understood the Scripture. You've not understood all that the prophets spoke concerning concerning the Messiah who was coming. 
You've only seen one part of it. And then he takes the Word of God. He takes the Word of God. And I don't think he had a scroll tucked in his pocket that he pulled out. He knew the Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ begins opening up the Old Testament Scripture and begins to show to them all the things concerning Himself. He begins to show to them all the truth about a Messiah who would suffer first and then enter into His glory, then enter into His kingdom. But He would suffer first. And all the way through the Old Testament, through the Law, through the Prophets, He began to lay out for them the things concerning the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and how He would suffer first. And this goes on for the whole time. You and I would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? Would you have liked to have been there and heard the the Lord of glory talk about Himself and explain to us through the Scripture? I bet there were things that He explained to them. We're still scratching our heads and saying, I wonder what that means. And He clearly laid it out for them and said, Ah, this is what it means. Concerns me. It concerns the suffering and the rising again from the grave. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they keep walking. And they get to where these two disciples live. And Jesus keeps walking as if he's going to go on. You know, and sometimes we listen to that and we read those words and say, what was he trying to do? Pretend he was going on? No, he was just doing a very cultural thing. He was doing what they would do in the culture. Here, it's getting to be nighttime. The responsibility of these disciples would be to provide them a place to stay, whether he was the Lord Jesus or whoever he was. He was a one walking along the road, and hospitality was a huge thing in those in those days, in the, uh, in the first century in particular, it was a huge responsibility that the Jews had for one another. And they're walking along the way, and he, he's going along, oh, okay, well, we'll see you along. What? But it's getting dark. Where are you going to go? Come, come inside and stay with us tonight. And typically the response would have been, oh, no, 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 I don't want to be trouble to you. No, you must come in. Come in. And they would invite him over again. We do this in the Philippines. The Philippines is a culture that is closer to the... To the uh, New Testament culture than what we have in the Western cultures. But there, it's always one of those things. If someone invites you and says, come, come over to my house. Oh, no, no, I can't. I've got several things to do. And if they don't ask you again, it means they really didn't want you to come. <laughs> you know? They just were being nice. But if they say, oh, no, no, you must come. Oh, no, you know, I really, I really should get home. Oh, please come. Third time, you go. Same thing with food. And they offer you anything. So here the offer comes. The Lord Jesus Christ takes them at their offer of hospitality, enters into their home, the Lord knowing exactly what He would do. Knowing exactly what He would do. Did you notice something? And surely you did. This is the central point of what I've been talking about over these last couple of weeks. Did you notice that when the question became, about the Lord and what He had done, and about how we hoped He would redeem Israel, that the Lord Himself did not say to them, Look, it is I. Look at me. It's me. It's the Lord. I'm your Lord. I'm right here. Look at me. And open their eyes and allow them to see. He did not do that. What did He do? He took the Word of God. And He applied the Word of God by the Spirit to the heart of those, of those disciples. He used the Word of God to convince their heart. And you notice, after He reveals Himself and He vanishes, they say, did not our heart burn within us when He suddenly disappeared? No. When He taught us along the way. 
Did not our hearts burn within us when He walked with us and He taught us and He told us about the Scripture? My brothers and sisters, how many times has that been your experience? As the Word of God is being taught to you, as the Word of God is being spoken to you, that your hearts begin to burn within you. You start to burn within you as the Spirit of God takes His Word and begins to drive it home to your heart. Whether that driving home is to to exhort, whether it's to encourage, whether it's to instruct, whatever the Spirit of God is attempting to do, your hearts begin to burn within you. I hope you've had that experience. I think everyone in this room, if you've been walking with the Lord and have been studying His Word and allowing the Spirit of God to teach you, you have had that experience. And sometimes it has broken you. Sometimes it has caused you to weep. Sometimes it has caused you to rejoice. Sometimes it causes you to jump up and down. Yes, it does the wonders of God. The wonders of our Lord. He opened up the Word of God. He opened up that special revelation of God. And the Word sunk down into their ears and into their heart. And it caused their heart to burn. Ah, do you long for that burning in your heart? Do you long for that burning in your heart? That experience with the living God as His Spirit takes His Word. The Lord shows them who He is. When He opens their eyes, He breaks the bread. They come in together. They sit down at a meal. And something very interesting occurs. I don't know if you ever saw this before. I'm sure you did because you're great students of the Word. But that He, the Lord Jesus, suddenly in the home of these two disciples, He becomes the host. He takes the bread and breaks it. That would have been the responsibility of the homeowner. That would have been the responsibility of the one who was the host at the meal. He would take the bread. He would break it. He would dispense it. The Lord Jesus takes the forefront. He takes the preeminence. He takes the bread. And He breaks it. And as soon as He breaks the bread, Their eyes are allowed to see. Their eyes are opened. And they recognize Him. It's it's the Lord Jesus. Boom, He's gone. Out of their midst. One thing that does not happen with this story is they don't say, it must have been an aberration, it must have been a spirit. They knew this was the Lord. They had the Lord Jesus with them for all those hours they walked along. They had the Lord Jesus with them all those seven miles as He taught them and instructed them. We have Him for the rest of our lives. And He is here. And He is with us. And His Spirit dwells within us. And His Spirit longs to teach you and train you, and lead you into the deep things of God. Things that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, that the Lord, through the Spirit, desires to reveal unto us. Have you believed all that the prophets have spoken? Are we still digging? Are we still digging? Oh, I hope it is true of us that we are still those who are digging into the Word of God. And learning that there's so much yet to be learned. Some of us in this room would remember and do remember with fondness Ernie Wagner. It was interesting as we we were taught by him over the years. Things that he taught us from the word in his simple manner. When he was growing old. How often you would hear him say. I just don't know. I just don't know. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. Oh, I'm I'm such a sinner. Oh, I'm such a sinner, he'd say. And we would look at him and say, Oh, Ernie. Oh, Ernie. If you're a sinner, what am I? Are we still digging? Are we still in the Word of God. He opened their eyes. 
and they knew him. Are your eyes open? Are your eyes open? Don't read the Word of God just as an exercise in your morning. Don't read the Word of God simply to clock, uh, to punch your spiritual time clock. To say, I've done my devotions, now I can get on with my day. Read the Word of God, expecting that the Spirit of God will cause your hearts to burn and wait on Him. You may have to go back to the same passage over and over and over again. Wait on Him. He longs to teach you. He longs to teach me. We are to allow the Spirit to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. So they rose up that very hour. The day was well spent. The day was well spent. Come in, the day is well spent. We can't do any more today. Come on in. And as soon as they saw the Lord, as soon as they knew that it was the Lord, they got up. It didn't matter what tower of the day it was. They were heading back to Jerusalem. They were going back. They were going to tell the disciples, we've seen Him, we've seen Him. He's alive, He's alive. And let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about why He had to suffer. And when He got back, Simon had already seen Him. And and they come into the room expecting to bring this wonderful news. And they say, Simon has seen the Lord. We have to. We have to. We've seen Him. Oh, my brothers and sisters. Have you seen the Lord? Not physically, of course. But is He a part of your day-to-day life? Part of your experience day-to-day? I pray that He is. And have we believed all that the prophets have spoken concerning Him? For He is, without question and without doubt, coming again. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the preciousness of your word. Oh, Father, there's so much we cannot comprehend. So much that is still secret to our minds that only you know with absolute certainty. But, Father, we want to be honest before you. We want to be those who are open before you. That you can take your word and apply it to our hearts and cause our hearts to burn. Oh, Father, may we be willing to hear the words that the Spirit wants to speak to our hearts, whether they be words of exhortation, whether they be harsh for us to hear. May we be those who are willing to hear. And may we live our lives understanding all that the prophets have spoken. May we live our lives understanding that one day you are going to send your son again and he is going to come back and we shall see him face to face. And as we wait for that day, may our lives bring glory and honor to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.